First Samuel chapter 24 this afternoon. Well, if you're like me, it's hard to um, to think and stay awake without, or right after a good meal and without a nap. So um, now's the time, not the time to take a nap. Uh, you'll get that later if you want, but um, I think it would be good for us to engage our minds here in First Samuel 24 and um, think about what it means to trust God. David has had the opportunity to kill Saul and uh, Nabal. He will have an opportunity to kill Nabal next week in First Samuel 25, and then Saul again in chapter 26. And so in three chapters, he has a clear opportunity to, to take out these men who are really um, opposing his position. But instead, David trusts in God and chooses not to kill any of these three men or, or the, any of these three opportunities, these two men. In contrast to seeking his own kingdom, David chooses to seek God's kingdom. You see, if he wanted to, he could take the kingdom of Saul by force and say, listen, God's promised it to me, so I'll, I'll go ahead and take it. Um, but instead, he trusts in God and allowed, allows God to, to take out Saul whenever God chooses. So in, in that sense, he, he really plays out or illustrates for us what we talked about this morning in Romans 13, which is to submit to the government that's been placed over him, even though he's a wicked man and who is seeking his life, um, his innocent life, really. And so David serves for us as an example of what it looks like to respond to evil with good. When people treat us with evil, we can still respond with good. We don't retaliate. We don't move on ahead of God where He's not leading. We don't um, become God. and That is, that we don't uh, take on God's judgment. Like, I'll take out God, God's judgment on that person. No, we leave room for the wrath of God. And um, instead of taking out vengeance, we return evil with good. And that's what David does here. So let's read our text together. I'll read it. You follow along in verse 1. This is the Word of God. Now when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. He came to the sheepfolds on the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. The men of David said to him, Behold, this is the day in which the Lord has said to you, Behold, I am about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. It came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. So he said to his men, Far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul arose, left the cave, and went on his way. Now afterward, David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, saying, My Lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of the men, saying, Behold, David seeks to harm you? Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord has given you today into my hand in the cave. And some said to kill you. But my eye had pity on you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. 
Now my father, see, indeed, see the edge of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you, know and perceive that there is no evil or rebellion in my hands. And I have not sinned against you, though you are lying in wait for my life to take it. May the Lord judge, may the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge me on you. But my hand shall not be against you, as the proverb proverb of the ancients say out of the wicked comes forth wickedness but my hand shall not be against you after whom has the king of israel come out whom are you pursuing a dead dog a single flea the lord therefore be judge and decide between you and me and may he see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand when david had finished speaking these words to saul saul said is this your voice my son david then saul lifted up his voice and wept He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have dealt well with me while I have dealt wickedly with you. You have declared today that you have done good to me, that the Lord delivered me into your hands, and yet you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he he let him go away safely? May the Lord therefore reward you with good in return for what you have uh, done to me this day. Now behold... I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. So now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's household. David swore to Saul and Saul went to his home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. So in chapter 24, we see that trusting God means knowing God's will and pursuing it God's way. David is going to need to figure out what it is that God desires of him, God's will, and then he's going to need to accomplish it God's way. So we see um, a couple of main things. First, trusting God means knowing God's will. If we're going to trust God, we need to know what he desires, what he wills. And we see that in verses 1 through 7. Now, the first thing that we see is that circumstances are not the best indicator of God's will. If David simply went on his circumstances, on all the things that seemed to be lining up. We, we often call it open doors. You know, If David went through all the open doors that seemed to be there, he would have killed Saul because he's just basically put right there in front of him. And so what we need to learn from this and from David is that circumstances are not always the best indicator of God's will. In fact, they're never the best indicator. They may be an indicator, but not the best. So let me, before we get into this, let me clarify two types of will that are talked about in the Scripture. So when you see the will of God, or when we talk about the will of God, there's two types of will. First, the decreed will of God. The decreed or the planned will of God. When I talk about this kind of will, I'm talking about God's plan. I I usually say it in those terms. So, for example, Isaiah 53.10. Isaiah 53.10 says, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was God's will to crush his son. So what does it mean that it was God's will? Did God have this burning desire to kill his son? No, it's it's part of his plan. It was God's plan that his son would die for the sake of the sin of mankind, right? So that's talking about God's plan. Or in Acts 4.28, when they were delivered over to the predetermined will of God by the predetermined will of God, that is, Christ was delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes in order for him to be killed, that's talking about 
God's decreed or his planned will. God's plan was for the son to die. So that's one type of will. The second type is God's desire, his desired will. When I talk about this, I talk about God's desire. I, I try not to use the word God's will unless the scriptures do. But, but the reason I do that is because it can be confusing as to which will I'm talking about. So when I'm talking about God's will in this way, I'm talking about God's desire. So for example, in 1 Thessalonians 5.8, Give thanks and everything for this is the what of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. The what? The will of God. So to give thanks in everything is God's will. Now, does that mean that that's God's plan? That in everything, every Christian will always give thanks. Is God's plan that way? No, because I can tell you, I'll, I'll confess, I haven't given thanks to God in everything. Uh, certainly not in my lifetime and, and probably even today, right? So that's not God's decreed plan that I would give thanks in everything. Instead, it's God's desired, it's His desired will. It's, it's His... It's his um, it's his desire that all Christians do this. Or 1 Thessalonians 4.3 This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Let me ask you a little bit of a difficult question. Has there ever been a Christian who's committed sexual immorality? And if you just look in the Scriptures, you're going to find that the answer to that is yes. Okay. So, so it is possible that a Christian could actually commit sexual immorality, yet God said it is my will that you don't. So that's not talking about his plan. That's talking about his desire. So, that, so when I talk about circumstances are not the best indicator of God's will, which, which will do you think I'm talking about? I'm talking about the second kind. God's desire. What is it that God desires me in this case? For, so, for example, for David, with Saul, should he kill Saul in order to get the kingdom that God already promised to him? What is God's desire in this? What is God's will in this? And right now, we, we have to look at the circumstances. It seems like all the circumstances are lining up, and if we just evaluate the circumstances alone, we might say, God must be wanting this to happen, David. Make it happen. And so what we should learn from David is that, that circumstances are not the best indicator of God's will. What do you think is the best indicator of God's will? Any ideas? The Scriptures. So what is it that God wants me to do? Not circumstances, not preconceived ideas, not what somebody else tells me necessarily. What does the Scripture say? What, what do the Scriptures say with regard to, to what He wants? And that's how we know God's will. So, for example, if you said that you think that God has God's desire, God's will, is for you to cheat on your taxes or your te- cheat on your upcoming exam so that you can get a passing grade, then I would tell you that that is not God's will because I actually have a, an objective basis for it. You might say, well, there's all these open doors of opportunity. The other person's sitting there. They're actually, they happen to be the smartest person in the class. And I would say to you, here's what God says about speaking truth and, and here's what God says about not bearing false witness to your teacher and, and presenting something that's not yours. And, and so I, I know what God's will for you is. It is not to cheat on your exam. Okay, so that's just a really easy example here. But, but here in chapter 24, David's in a position where his circumstances are starting to, in terms of a secular perspective, they're starting to work in his favor. Because Saul, in the last episode that we saw, um, he, he was closing in on David. 
And he brought all of his men, and he found them on the other side of this mountain. And so Saul's men are on one side, David and his men are on the other side, and they are Saul, David's men are very much outnumbered. He only has 600 men. Saul has at least 3,000, but probably more like 20 to, to 200,000. And he sends, Saul sends his guys one on one side and one on the other. They split up so they make sure that they're going to catch David. And just as they're about to get to David, a messenger comes. Saul, Saul, the Philistines are attacking our homeland. We need to go back. Instead of Saul following through and killing David, his arch nemesis, he, he decides to go back and protect his homeland. And so David is spared. And so we know that God is on his side. And, and here, in verses 1 through 3, Saul, again, is on the attack. Apparently, he, after going back and protecting his land from the Philistines, he comes back and finds out where David is. And he brings 3,000 men. See that in verse 2. He brings 3,000 men to seek David in these rocks, the rocks of the wild goats. And what we know from other parts of Scripture is that some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, and we conclude here, some trust in military forces. But, but what do we trust in, believers? We trust in the name of the Lord our God. It's not the size of the army that's important. It's not that David was outnumbered. It's whether or not God was on his side. Well, Saul moves into position of strength while while uh, David is, is going back more and more into hiding. Do you know where David's hiding? When Saul's on the attack, he's hiding in a cave. And it just so happens to be in a cave in which Saul will need to become vulnerable. That is, he needs to relieve himself. Verse 3, the text literally reads, to cover his feet. This is euphemism for relieving himself. And so in this situation, Saul would go in unaccompanied by any guards, Right? It's a private matter. And he probably would have to take off of his, his armor and, and he would enter into the cave unarmed and probably take off his outer robe perhaps. And it just so happens that God has placed David in the exact cave where Saul would relieve himself. So if David were thinking circumstances are my best indicator of what God's desire is, here it is. Here's my opportunity to kill Saul. He is at his most vulnerable position that he will ever be in in front of me. And so what we need to learn is that circumstances are not the best indicator. Secondly, friends are not the best indicator of God's will. Now, friends can be a good indicator of what God desires, but friends are not the best indicator. Here, Saul's own men who are on his side, they're, they're thinking of David's best interest. They're interpreting the situations and see the situation and seeing Saul there at his most vulnerable and saying, David, this is it. Notice what they say in verse 4. Um, Behold, this is the day. This is the day which the Lord said to you, Behold, I'm about to give your enemy into your hand. Do you see, David? It's happening. This is it. God said He was going to give your enemy into your hand and now He's doing it. Sometimes the people that are closest to you might think that they know what God is doing, but we must test what they say against what is true from the Word of God. So, for example... Jesus was tempted in the, in the wilderness, right? By Satan who used Scripture. Listen, this is from God. These are words from God. I'm speaking to you on behalf of God. Saying here, change this stone into bread. Don't you think that would be a good thing? 
All the circumstances are lining up for you to change the stone into bread. Do it. And Jesus had to interpret what Satan was saying against what God was saying. See, Satan was pretending to be on his side to give him what he thought would be most helpful. But Jesus interpreted the circumstances not based on what other people were saying, not based on his circumstances, but on what the Scriptures say. So let me encourage you to seek the will of God. And then, as you seek the will of God, what is it that God wants me to do? Now you can evaluate your circumstances. See, we do it the opposite. We look at our circumstances, what must this mean? Or we listen to our friends, what, what are they saying that I must do? And then we say, well, let's see if the Scriptures match that. No, we need to do it the opposite way. Look at the Scriptures, what does God want me to do? Now, I can, I can seek wise counsel, absolutely. I can evaluate my circumstances. But the most important thing is, what do the Scriptures say? You realize that that seeking wise counsel is commanded in Scripture, but you also need to realize that counselors can be wrong. Even counselors in church. I can be wrong in my counsel of you. So you need to check what I have to say against the Scripture. Evaluate your situation and your what your friends are saying on the basis of what God says. So in verse 4, instead of killing Saul like his friends tell him to, David says... I'm not going to do that. Instead, he cuts the edge of his robe. But then after he does it, verse 5, his conscience is pricked. And and we might think, well, what's the big deal? Just cut the edge of his robe. I mean, Saul's been pursuing him. He's he's basically a a maniacal assassin to David. And and why is David so concerned about whether he cut a robe or not? And I I really like what um, Tim Chester has to say in his commentary. He, He kind of goes through, and I think this is consistent with what the robe meant in 1 Samuel. Do you remember when Samuel promised Saul that his kingdom would be taken from him and given to someone better in chapter 15? What does Saul do? He pleads with him. He grabs onto his rope. And what happens to Samuel's robe? What happens to it? He tears it, right? And what does Samuel say, the prophet? Samuel says, well, you know what you just did there? You tore the robe. You tore my robe. But but let this be a picture to you of what's going to happen to your kingdom. Your kingdom will be taken from you. Okay, so picture that, what the robe meant there for Samuel with Saul. And then picture what the the robe means for Jonathan in chapter 18. What was it that Jonathan gave to David as a symbol that the throne would be passed down to David from his father Saul? It wouldn't be passed down to Jonathan, the prince. Right, the crown prince. He gives to David what? A robe. He's saying, listen, the kingdom's not going to pass down to me, Jonathan, even though I'm the rightful heir, the oldest son. It's going to you. I'm giving it to you. Because I recognize that God has ordained that this will happen. So now, here's what David's doing. David's in the cave. We might not think much of this, but he cuts the edge of Saul's robe as a a symbolic way, perhaps, of saying, I'm taking the kingdom now. This kingdom's coming to me. And after he does it, he realizes what he did and he realizes that he didn't want to kill Saul and that the kingdom was not David's to take. It was God's to give. And he would get the kingdom. God had promised it to him. But it wasn't David's to take. So he didn't need to make this symbolic gesture to Saul that the kingdom's coming to him. David already knew that. Saul already knew that. And so in verse 6, David acknowledges Saul's position as king. And in verse 7, he prevents his men from 
killing Saul. Notice the language there in verse 7. David persuaded his men. So if David was crafty, he could have allowed his men to kill Saul, right? Well, you know, I'm supposed to get the kingdom anyway, and I'm technically not the one to kill Saul myself, so I'll let you guys do it. You guys came up with the idea. I'm not going to stop you. Or they could have said, you know, it was self-defense. Saul's coming after us. We're just trying to protect ourselves. The best way to protect ourselves is to kill the one who's trying to kill us. But he didn't do that, did he? But because he recognized that if his men killed Saul, it was the same as he, kill, he, he killed Saul. Just like with Uriah. Remember, he wasn't actually the one who stuck the sword into Uriah after his, his uh, immorality and trying to cover it up. He wasn't the one who did it, but do you know who took responsibility for it? Know who, do you know who God gave responsibility for that sin? It was David, because David ordered it. And so in the same way, if he had allowed his men to take King Saul's life, it would be the same as David did. So what he did is he actually protected Saul here. Notice the word again, verse 7, David persuaded his men. If you look in the margin of your Bible, you see that it could also be translated, or literally, David tore apart his men. So what you have here is that they are, they are like ravenous wolves. They're ready to attack. Are you kidding me? My master's been being chased by this maniacal man and here is our opportunity and we're ready to, to kill him. Like some of these rallies, you know, the, these protesters and some of these presidential primaries and things, you know, when they, when they actually see these people speak, they just, the vitriol is so strong and full and, and that's what these men are like. And yet David's saying he had to tear them apart, stop them, sharply rebuke them. It's not just a casual conversation. Hey, guys, guys, don't do it. No, he's like, you are not doing it. You will not kill the Lord's anointed. So here we have David, a man of character, seeking to protect the person who's trying to kill him. And he does it not by taking his circumstances and using that as an excuse to kill Saul and not taking his friend's advice he instead evaluates God's will on the basis of what God has told him. So, secondly, trusting God means pursuing His will, His way. So God's desire and God's way. When we do this, when we seek God's will, if we're going to trust God, we need to do it by defending our own integrity, verses 8-11. through 11. Here David speaks to Saul. He comes out of the cave and they have a little bit of a distance between them. And David says to Saul, listen, don't trust in those reports that you hear about me trying to kill you. I'm not trying to kill you. Do you know how, I, how you should know that? Here's the edge of your robe. You were in the cave, vulnerable. I could have killed you so easily. And I didn't do it. You know why, Saul? Because you are the king. You are God's king. Does that go along a little bit with Romans 13? All rulers are God's rulers no matter how evil. You may be seeking to murder me, but I had an opportunity to protect myself by killing you and I passed on it. Let this be a symbol of that. It may require us to defend our own integrity. Pursuing God's goal, secondly, demands that we leave room for the wrath of God. Again, this goes along with Romans 12, that, that we will have evil done to us. But, but we don't have to return evil for evil. Instead, we need to leave room for the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay, God says. I'll take care of the judgment part. 
Your job is to leave room so that I can actually pour out my wrath on them. See, it's not that David thinks that Saul is unworthy of judgment. Look at verse 12. He says, May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. So it's not that David thinks that, that Saul, you're unworthy of judgment. You don't deserve God's judgment. No, he knows. Let the Lord evaluate our two situations here. You clearly are deserving of God's wrath, but I'm not going to be the one that carries it out. You know why? It's not my job. I'm going to leave room for the wrath of God. In verse 13, if, if I were wicked, I would do wickedness. That's what wicked people do. They do wicked things. And what I'm telling you is since I didn't do wickedness, then you should recognize what's in my heart, Saul. So, verse 14, it's worthless for Saul to chase David, right? What am I to you? I'm a dead dog. What value is there in a dead dog? Who goes to an auction to buy a dead dog? Okay, Or who goes to an auction or, or a pet store to buy a single flea? That's what I'm like to you, Saul. Why are you chasing me? I'm of no value. And then verse 15, the Lord is, my fi- is the final judge. So I'm going to leave it into God's hands. Saul, you were given into my hand. That's how the, the friends described it. You were given into my hand today. But I want you to know that, that you were rescued by God from being killed. David, didn't, he can't appeal his case to Saul. You know, Saul has been chasing David. David doesn't deserve to be chased and killed. He hasn't done anything wrong. That's clearly come up in several cases. Jonathan tried to make that clear to him. David's tried to make that clear to him. David is innocent, yet he's being chased and pursued as if he's a fugitive or a a murderer. And so who do you appeal to when you're being chased, even though you're innocent? Well, typically you would appeal to the highest authority in the land. Well, that's Saul. That's the guy who's chasing him, so that doesn't work out. And so what David does here in verse 15 is saying, let the Lord be the judge. I can't appeal to my highest authority on earth, and so I'm going to appeal to God because He's the one who ultimately has the rule over you, Saul. Let Him be the judge in this situation. So we need to defend our integrity, possibly, but we definitely need to leave room for the wrath of God, verses 12 to 15. Number three, pursuing God's goal, God's way, means that we must overcome evil with good, verses 16 to 22. We must overcome evil with good. Here, um, Saul amazingly responds with contrition. We might expect Saul to say, well, you know, skip you, David. I'm coming after you anyway. You're, you're a terrible wretch and you're going to take my throne and I'm not going to allow that to happen. But notice what he says in verse 19. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safely? I mean, who does this, David? If a person finds his enemy in a vulnerable spot, who lets that person go? No one does that. Really, the one who does that is the one who fears God. And the point is that David doesn't treat Saul like Saul treats David. And so Saul Saul acknowledges David's rightness in this. Verse 17, you are more righteous than I. And then verse 19, he prays for a blessing. The second part of verse 19 says, May the Lord therefore reward you, David, with good in return for what you have done to me this day. Here's a prayer of blessing by Saul. Verse 20, I know that you're going to be king of Israel. 
He says, listen, I've been resisting it. Samuel told me that a a king was going to come along that was better than me. And and I know that you were the one. I know that Jonathan passed the robe down to you. And, And now I'm admitting it to you, David. You are the one who will be king, will take my place. And so what will you do for me? Verse 20, since you're going to be the king, would you preserve my family? That's what he asks in verse 20. Now behold, I know that you will surely be the king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. Verse 21, so now swear to me, David, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's household. Well, this is an easy covenant for David to make. Why? Because he's already made it with Jonathan, right? Jonathan already asked for this very thing. David, it, we're, we're, I'm going to covenant to protect you as much as I can, but, but you need to um, agree to me that you're going to take care of my family. Well, he's, David already agreed to that. I think it was in chapter 18. Now, now Saul asks for the same kind of covenant. Now we might look at something like this and say, well, you know what? It looks like Saul has genuinely repented. Right? He's turned away from his sin. He's acknowledged his sin, that David is more righteous than he is. He's acknowledged that he shouldn't have been chasing him. He's acknowledged that David's going to be the rightful king. And so you might say, well, that's, there it is. There's genuine repentance. It's all that we need to know. But we know from the larger context that this is only temporary. That this is only a sorrow that does not lead to Repentance. This is a worldly kind of sorrow that he has. Because it's not two chapters later that he's back chasing after David once again. Well, David agrees to the covenant in verses 21 and 22. Verse 22. One of the reasons that this was so important to Saul was because, as I mentioned earlier, one of the things that kings like to do, both in our day and, and prior is that, especially in the ancient Near East, that the king would often slaughter all of the family of the previous king so that no one could say at any point, well, I'm actually the rightful heir. You're not the rightful heir to the throne. So now I'm going to be the king. And so then you have this big, huge civil war going on. So what the new king would do is he would slaughter the family of the old king. And so what Saul is saying is, listen, David, you're going to be the new king, but please don't kill all my family. Well, David had no intention of doing that, so he agrees to it. And, um, and yet, notice that David has little confidence in Saul's repentance. Verse 22, David swore to Saul, and Saul went to his home. And you would think the next words are, and David went along with him. This genuine repentance, right? He, he acknowledged his sin. He seems like he's wanting to enter into a good covenant with David. But David and his men, notice verse 22, went back to the stronghold. So we, we might expect David to go back to Gibeah with Saul, but instead he goes back into his fortress. That's because David sees right through this contrition on the part of Saul. And I think part of the reason is because Saul has no, there's nothing in this covenant that says anything about him having a desire to repent. There's no intent on him stopping his pursuit. He never said, David, because we're making this covenant, I'm going to stop pursuing you. Nothing like that, is it? Just protect me. See, Saul recognized he was in a vulnerable position that he could have been killed, but he makes no promise to stop pursuing David, which was the sin. He was trying to overthrow God's plan, which is why David went back to his stronghold and Saul went back home. David leaves very much aware that Saul is unwilling to recognize 
un- unwilling to reconcile. And, and Saul leaves thinking, hey, my family's protected. That's all I care. He doesn't say anything like, let the Lord be the judge between you and me. I'm actually, I actually have good motives in trying to protect myself. He doesn't say any of that. All he says is, would you protect my family? Not genuine repentance. All right, principles to consider. Three of them. Number one, there's something more important than freedom from trouble. There's something more important than freedom from trouble. If David's greatest treasure, his greatest desire was permanent safety, or if David's greatest desire was to sit on the throne of Israel, you know what he would have done in that situation? If that were his greatest desire, Saul's in the cave in a vulnerable position, David would have killed him. Now, it's true that David would be both safe from Saul and king of Israel. And certainly those things are not unimportant to David. But he treasures something more than safety and more than the throne. Do you realize that? David treasures God's approval most of all. And so do you know how he's going to come to get this throne? Not by force, but by trusting in God. And, and in God's timing. And God's timing for Saul to die and, to, and for David to be king will come, but it's not going to be at the hand of David. I will not be the one who brings about this death. The method and mindset of David reminds me of David's greater son, Jesus. That Jesus did not in His first coming come to take the throne by force, did He? He did not come to take the throne of David by violence. Instead, he submitted to God's plan and God's timing and suffered reproach in the process. In other words, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. And it was through that humility and obedience that God chose that He would exalt him and give him a name which is above every name so that one day every knee will bow. And so we need to be following the example of David and Jesus and that we make sure that our highest treasure in life is not safety, it's not getting some position or power, but our highest treasure is to do God's will. Not, not that we are free from trouble, not to have personal comfort and safety as their primary idol, or to be vindicated in front of our, our enemies. Our primary goal in life ought to be to do God's will, to know and to do God's will. And if we do, do you know what happens when those troubles come? And, and when those troubles remain for a long time? We're okay with that. Not that we love them or we wish them on anyone or we, we even hope that we, they continue. But, but as long as God's pleased, that's what matters most. We want to be doing what God wants us to do. There's something more important than personal comfort and safety. Number two, understanding God's will demands careful discernment. I think I told you there were three. There are actually two. Okay, this is it. Understanding God's will demands careful discernment. All right, let's go back to David's situation and think about all of the events, the circumstances that seem to line up to say, David, this is God giving Saul into your hands. Number one, God promised that David would be king of Israel. True or false? True. You will be the king. He had already been anointed, actually. Two, God endorsed that promise through Jonathan's confirmation. Jonathan, the rightful heir to the throne, here's the throne. Here's the weapons and the robe. Third, Saul made himself David's enemy. 
Saul was the one who initiated this, this, this war, this strife. Fourth, God anointed David with the Spirit of, of the Lord. Fifth, Saul showed up in David's lap unprotected. And, and so if we take all these circumstances, we think, well, that must be God. He's opened all the doors. I, I must be, it must be my responsibility. It must be God's will for me to kill Saul. You see, this story helps us in being able to interpret our circumstances. Because there are going to be times in your life when there are clear evidences, seemingly clear evidences, that God is leading you in a particular way. But if you don't check that against what God has actually said, you will do something that is opposed to God. See, the thing that drove David was that David knew that it would be sin to kill God's anointed. So, David's confident in God's promise. You're going to be the king. I believe that, God. But if it's going to happen, it's not going to be happen with me killing the king. David was not going to move ahead of God. You see, if his primary motiva- motivation was to become king, he would have killed Saul. And, it, and he would have explained it, explained it away with all these justifications. Well, you know, there's all these clear things that are leading to it. And so we can learn several things from David first. We must remember that God orders all the events of the universe. God is the one who's in control of all these things, even the opposition that we receive from our authority. Second, we must recognize that there are levels of delight or importance to God's commands. If we put all of God's commands all on the same level and God desires all of them the same, then we don't understand God. Because God tells us that to obey is to better than to what? The sacrifice. Now, he commanded the sacrifice. But he's saying, I want more than that. Or, or I want a contrite heart over the offering. I want the offering, but I want the contrite heart along with it. We need to recognize there are levels of delight that God has. Third, when things fall into place, when all the doors seem to be opening for us to do something, that doesn't necessarily mean that God is in it. Could be that God's simply testing us, right? He could be checking to see if our faith is in Him or if it's based on just our circumstances. So don't take all the open doors, okay? This, this open door from God. Don't take it that way. Make sure you interpret that on the basis of Scripture. So, fourth, when things do fall into place, when all the open doors are there, make sure you interpret those circumstances with what you know to be true. In other words, make sure you have biblical principles and convictions by which you operate, and that should be the driving thing. So let me just give you a really extreme example that I think you will all agree is just ridiculous, but, but this will make, might help you in making some of your decisions that are less ridiculous, all right? So let's, say, let's take an example of a husband whose, life, whose love for his wife has cooled, okay? Here are the facts. His heart is cold in his marriage, God wants him to be joyful. Okay, is that true for believers? Does God want believers to be joyful? Yes. Okay, so his heart is cooled in his marriage, but God wants him to be joyful. He finds he thinks he'll find joy in a spouse, in a new spouse. He met a woman at work who seems to better compliment him, both compliment with an I and compliment with an E, better than his current wife. 
and this new woman is a Christian. Her husband died last year. She has two kids who can't support, who can't, uh, she can't support. And so it would make more sense if he pooled his resources with her. She seems to be in favor of it. She's a single mother. God cares for single mothers. Okay, so those are all the circumstances that seem to be leading to this open door. And here's his ungodly evaluation. The Lord must be giving her into my hands. And so therefore, I must divorce my wife and marry this woman. Now, we, I, I hope we all recognize how ridiculous of a reasoning that is. Because if he were thinking on the basis of Scripture and not on the basis of open doors and circumstances falling into place, then he would say, no, God has, God has called me to love this woman. I have committed to, marry her, uh, to, to be married to her for, for the rest of my life. It doesn't matter what my feelings say or how all the circumstances are lining up. I will stay committed to her. And I will work to love her more. That's what he should be doing. You see, we may not do it to that kind of extreme, although if you talk to some believing couples who've had that kind of, those kinds of circumstances, they actually sometimes walk through that door and think that God is in it. And they have sometimes even some Christian counselors who will tell them, you know, God wants you to be happy. And God wants that other woman to be happy. And so in the process, they destroy this other you know, woman and, and, and family and, and make her unhappy, so to speak. But, um, but Christian counselors, pastors, are, are, are giving that kind of... And why? Because they don't go on the basis of what the Scriptures teach. Instead, they go on the basis of what feels right or what the circumstances seem to be leading to. You see, the difference between a righteous person and an evil person is expressed and how they interpret their circumstances. An evil person, I think, in this case, in David's case, would have killed Saul in the same situation. But a righteous person would not because he knew that God's anointed was to be moved out of that place by God alone, not by David. And so while we may not have some big circumstances like what I was talking about with the divorce situation, we may not have some big situation that we're thinking about. All of our interpretation of God's will comes down to that same sort of thinking. Not the open doors. That's not the primary thing. Not what our friends tell to us. What do, what do the Scriptures say? That's what it comes down to. So the bottom line is, we're not going to be good at interpreting circumstances in life if we're not good at discerning. And the way that we get better at discerning is by knowing the Scriptures more, by growing in our knowledge of God. So this is my prayer for you. The same thing that Paul prays for the Philippians, something I pray for you often, that your love may abound more and more in the truth so that you will be able to discern what is best. Philippians 1, 9 and 10. So let's pray for God to help us as we think in that way. Father, our hearts today have been encouraged and they have been challenged. Encouraged because we're reminded of our Savior and what He's done for us. Encouraged because we are reminded in all three services that, that You, Father, are on the throne and that no one can thwart Your plans. All of Your purposes will come to pass. Lord, while we don't understand them all, we are confident that You are a good God and that You're constantly working for for your glory, your, your purposes, and also for our good. You're never doing this out of uh, punishment. All the punishment that we deserved went on, on the shoulders of Christ. And so the only 
trouble that we have in life is either to test us, to show what kind of faith we have, or to discipline us, to, to grow us. And so, Lord, we're thankful for your word and how it shapes us, causes to correct our thinking, and also reproves us to put us back on the path towards righteousness. And Lord, perhaps there are people here making some serious consideration about what your desire is in life. Maybe something as serious as a marriage relationship. Maybe something as serious as a job or a, a, a move or um, whatever the case, Lord. Maybe something less serious. Lord, help us to be discerning people. Teach us to grow in your knowledge and help us to know more what you desire and the levels of importance that you give to various things. And, and Lord, then help us to do what you desire. And certainly we do want to seek the, the counsel and the support and the help of good friends. But Lord, I pray that that would not be the, the, final, um, the final determining factor, but instead it would be what your word says. So give us help and discernment as we seek to obey you in every area of life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.